Hello and welcome to the RPG Academy podcast. I am Michael, and today we are here for a show and tell, which is where we bring on a guest and we talk about something cool. Today's guest is Liam Ginty, lead designer from Sandy Pug Games. And the something cool is they're in the process of being kickstarted or will be started kickstarting here in a couple of days for an RPG called Americana. Liam, welcome to the show. Hey, Michael. How are you today, sir? I am doing great, thanks. Fantastic. So you sent me an email, uh, told me about this project that you're working on. I was very interested in it. It hits a couple buttons for things that I rather enjoy. So we're going to talk a little bit about it, deep dive into it. But before we get too far started, the name of your company is Sandy Pug Games, and I'm a sucker for figuring out where things come from. So where did that name come from? So that's actually kind of a funny story. It's got it's got two answers to it, and I'm going to give you both. Okay. I usually just give whichever one I prefer at the time. Um, so when I was about when I was like like eighteen, nineteen, um, I was very big into space and space development and space like industry and what have you. Sure. Um, and I actually ran a podcast about it at the time, but uh, so. I was really interested in it, and as my final year university project, I designed, I was a business major, I designed a, a space mining company, and I went through all of the, the process of, like, figuring out the insurance, and uh, finding out how, how much R&D might cost, all this sort of thing, and it was, it was really in-depth, and the name for that company I came up with was Sandy Pug Asteroid Mining, because it just seemed like kind of a silly name, I really like pugs, I'm a big fan. Um... And then obviously that that wasn't a real company that sort of just went by <laughs> the the side as I went on the rest of my life. When I started designing board games about five years ago or so, um, I actually had a small sandy pug. Um, he was he was my pet. His name was Pugsley. Uh, sadly, not with us anymore. Aww. But he uh, he ended up being my logo, and which is still my logo to this day because we we sort of painted him in this really like grotesque silly silly way and right. so sandy pug games just sort of came naturally out of that oh that's awesome so i am very sorry to hear about your loss but uh, i love that story i think that's awesome pugsley of course is i mean just perfect <laughs> awesome so uh so the game we're going to talk about today is not your first game you've got you have a couple other credits to your name a one start one page kickstarter uh, or excuse me one one page RPG that was released, and then a second one that was kickstarted. Um, we might circle back around to those, but I just like to note that this isn't the first time that you have done these sort of things. Mm-hmm. So Americana, from what I see from the information you sent to me, is sort of a, an Elseworld 1950s America. Think like uh, American graffiti, you know, cars, slick back hairs, greasers, jocks, that kind of thing. Uh, but it's not our true America, because in this one there are like dragons and other supernatural creatures. So, so what is it? Is there something about the 1950s Americana that you rather enjoy, or why did you want to turn it on its head and change it up a little bit? What is it about the setting that excites you? Well, I really like the aesthetic of the 1950s. Um, I really, really dig the cars. I really dig the clothes. You know, rockabilly fashion in popular times, just this like really neat look to me, and. I also sort of thought about settings that one of the things that I like to think about and like work with are settings and ideas that really don't get a lot of play in the RPG space. And the 1950s just kind of sits bare and open. I don't think anyone's really touched it. And so like that's a big reason why I wanted to play around in that space as well. The setting also gives a lot of really interesting a lot of really interesting ideas for what your characters can be doing and their place in the world. It's 
one of the other parts of Americana is that you're playing as teenagers, um, which was a brand new thing at the time. 1950s was one of the very first times that teenagers existed in, in the United States, at least, in, in the Western world. And they were, you know, scary to some people. The idea of this long adolescence was still kind of untested. People really didn't know what was going to come of it. And so that kind of makes a, all just a prepackaged, really good... Um, play a character protagonist sort of role baked into the setting and that's always nice okay yeah i think you know i'm, I'm by no means a historian but I, I you know went to school and studies a few things and prior to like the 1940s and 50s most kids went straight from childhood to adulthood like there was a right. very small transition where you were expected to get married get a job and then we had this sort of boom where suddenly kids had free time to go mm -hmm. do things and hang out and cars were becoming prominent so it's definitely an interesting time in our history uh, but one of the things that I noticed in reading of the materials is right away you call out, even though the 1950s has a lot of interesting aspects to it and there is some nostalgia to it, it in fact wasn't a great time for a lot of different people. If you right. pretty much were middle class or higher white person and male specifically, kind of sucked. Um, so how did you address that in your game? That's um, a really, that was a really tough question. For, for me to answer and it took a lot of time and a lot of consulting with people uh, much smarter than me to figure it out um, we go over this in the game a little bit but but it seemed to us that there was three ways to address that you could address it head on and sort of rewrite time and come up with a real big convoluted law reason why there's no uh, why, why there's no oppression in the world while you're making this world safe and, and what have you you can include it and so make this 1950s where the oppression is still sort of mirrored to ours. Or you can do what we did, which is just to say straight out right at the beginning of the game, this 1950s doesn't have those oppressions, at least in the way that we know about them. Oppression can take many different forms, of course, but systemic oppression is the one that really, really hurts a lot of people and really, really is, is the one that, that, that kicks, right? In Americana, a, a person can be racist, a person can be sexist, a person can be ableist, etc. Um, a person can, can have that hate within them, but a, the system, for whatever reason, for whatever reason you want to come up with at your table, or for whatever reason you don't even want to bother thinking about, that was never ingrained in the system in the same way that it was at the time. You're not going to be denied bank loans, people aren't going to, like, the police aren't going to unfairly treat you, that sort of thing. Um, I think we've made the right choice, and a lot of the feedback we've got from sensitivity readers and other folks who've read it um, along various different oppression spectrums have stated that they think that this is a, a pretty elegant way of putting it. The The goal really was just to make a version of the 1950s that those people um, and people like myself could play in without having to worry about those themes, those ideas, the, those sort of like I said, those oppressions coming up in play. Something fun. It was sort of a, almost an act of reclamation. Um, as an LGBTQ person myself, when I thought about playing in the 1950s, when I think about that fashion and that time frame, when I watch movies like Grease and, and when I watch movies like Rebel Without a Cause, I want to enjoy them, but the whole time I'm remembering how like people like myself probably were pretty brutally persecuted at the time if they wanted to join in in sort of these activities that they do in the film you know they wanted to to be themselves and i wanted to make a space where that was possible so i, I think we're doing the right thing by just sort of saying authoritatively 
that isn't present in this setting. Like, if you want to come up with a, a in-universe reason why that is, you can. We sort of imply that just the world puts a lot more focus on cooperation and um, sort of togetherness and solidarity. And rather than w like war and conflict pushing innovation and what have you, it's it's sort of unity. Uh, but e even then, it's sort of light in the system. We, we just sort of say it. There is no uh, systemic oppression here. Go on with the game however you want from there. Yeah, I, I actually, I think in that, I don't know that there might not be a better way to handle it, but I think the way you handled it was great. I love that you were just very upfront, like, hey, this is how this game works, or this is how the setting works. Yeah, again, because of my role as a podcaster that I'm I'm adjacent to a lot of different RPGs and Kickstarters and I'm you know, I'm just on Twitter and I hang out and talk to people and play games, I know that there are some camps that will decry the lack of historical accuracy, which in itself is bumpkus because most of the time they're ignoring actual reality to supplement it with what they think reality is. But yeah, I, it's not fun if you're someone who has to deal with that or sometimes not to go into a fantasy world and then still have to deal with that stuff. So I, and I think a lot of people, I'm, I'm going to put a blanket statement. A lot of people, when we start a game, we'll just say, Hey, even though we're, we're playing a semi medieval fantasy setting here, we're not going to deal with sexism or racism or ableism. Like that's just in our version of this world that doesn't exist because we want everyone to be welcome at the table and have fun. Right. Uh, I love that it's just codified into the, into the game. Like this is how this works. And if you're not interested, you know, if that, that bothers you, then maybe this isn't the game for you. And you don't say that. I'm saying that for you, that right. if someone reads this and they're like, I don't like that, fine, <laughs> move along. Right. I think there's, there's a lot of value in games that explore themes of sexism, homophobia, etc. Um, and, and games that you can sort of get into and really, like, tussle with those subjects. I think there's a lot of really fantastic games going on in the experimental games um, corner of our world where people are making games that directly tackle these ideas and I love those games but America I didn't want Americana to be one of those I didn't want Americana to be a game about oppression and about oppressive structures that you have to tussle with in the game I wanted Americana to be a game for people who suffer under those structures to have a good time in and sort of reclaim a time when those oppressive structures were maybe at some of their most powerful here in here in the United States. Right. I, I'm a big movie person as well, at least I claim to be. Hmm. Uh, and one of my favorite movies is Pleasantville. Have you ever watched that movie? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the thing about, like, I enjoy, because in that, in that movie there's a character who really likes, you know, the Leave it to Beavers and Father Know Best kind of, kind of movies uh, and has this idealized version of what that time was like. And then in through the magic of movies gets put into a position where they're in a situation like that, an actual real world and becomes confronted with those, um, you know, those actual, the racism and sexism and sees that it wasn't as they thought. And I, I love that movie because it does that. It, it presents this idealized version and then shows you that that wasn't what it was really like. And I, again, I think that explores an, a space and is, you know, somewhat helpful to people to get a different perspective. But I also like to, roll dice and pretend I'm an orc uh, and I don't want to have to worry about that in some of my games. So I think there's a place for both. I, but I think for your game, I'm very happy to see that it's like, we're just going to play in this game. We're not going to worry about that. And really the setting is just the backdrop because the game isn't about necessarily being a teenager, whether you're a dragon or something else in the 1950s. It's actually about murder. It's a murder mm. mystery game. So, so, so we already talked about Americana a little bit. So what is it about the murder mystery genre that uh, that attracted you and why did you put these two things together it was 
So, so I, I really like the murder mystery genre in all kinds of media. I really love uh, films like Brick or Twin Peaks or, you know, I, I love Agatha Christie novels. I just, the, it's, it's just a really, really cool thing to me. It's like solving this mystery, investigating, finding the clues and that sort of thing. And again, just like how the setting was sort of inspired by me looking at what is popular and what people are playing and what games are out there. It's one of those themes in role-playing games that don't get all that much coverage. There's a couple of really fantastic murder mystery games, but not that many. Um, it's also a, a theme that isn't predicated upon your player characters going out and doing some violence against some other group of people, and then like that's the player loop, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there's a rather important large piece of violence that happens early on in that narrative, but... For the most part, a murder mystery game is probably going to be pretty nonviolent, pretty in you know about relationships and about ties and that sort of thing. And so that's really what inspired me about that. What made me combine the two? I had the idea for Americana setting for a very long time. Um, it was very sort of silly that the idea came to me in a dream. The the <laughs> the piece of um, I don't know if you're going to be showing off artwork to people somehow, but I have this um, taster piece that I've been showing off to people to sort of get them to get an idea of the setting. Um, that specific image just sort of came to me at one point, and I was like, oh, that's kind of a cool idea. I should do something with that. Um, but I, I rewatched Brick. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that film. I so, love that movie. It just came back on Netflix. It's fantastic. Um, yes. It's For anyone who doesn't know, Brick is kind of like a... A film noir uh, with like a hard-boiled detective um, and like a narration, except it all takes place in a high school, um, and like the stakes are changed in that way. It's really, really fantastic uh, film. Everyone should check it out. But um, I watched Brick, and I saw how they merged that murder mystery idea with the teenage high school idea, and then it was kind of a natural jump to go from that to that idea I had for Grease but with orcs to sort of smash them together, you know? Mm -hmm. The idea of Grease but with orcs wasn't really anything because I couldn't really think about what the gameplay loop would be there. You can't go dungeon crawling. But, uh, yeah, murder mystery seemed to click really well. So I, I'm also a big fan of Veronica Mars, so I don't uh -huh. know if, if you're familiar with that show or not. Oh, yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. And that was probably the first thing that that, that I saw in it was is basically, I don't, don't want to... Uh, you know, minimize it, but it's Veronica Mars, except instead of being in high school in the 90s, it's high school in the 50s with, mm -hmm. again, orcs and dragons and that kind of stuff. I think uh, that's a pretty good explanation for it, yeah. And for me, that is a positive. Like, that is that is, yeah. high, that is high praise uh, because I love that show. So, um, we haven't talked much about the, the mechanics. I want to talk, obviously, I think the setting, because when you come into a, a, an RPG like this, I think there's really two avenues that will draw people in. The setting is interesting, or the mechanics are interesting. In a perfect world, they both are interesting and they blend together. Mm -hmm. So is, is there anything else about the setting that you think is interesting or, or noteworthy that we want to talk about before we move into like how the game actually plays and that kind of thing? So we're 1950s, but we're in an else world with, again, dragons and orcs. But is there anything else beyond that that would be... If someone understands what the 1950s is like, so American audiences probably in the 30s, 40, 50-year-old range, is there anything else about it that's like, oh, well, this is different in our world? Um, I'd say, so one of the things about the game is that we really wanted to, our approach to law and our approach to backstory is a little different than most games. So there really isn't all that much as so far as like the backstory goes. Um, th there's not that much history in the world. There's a little section at the end of the book where we talk about the various fantasy species and 
our ideas for their origins and their place in the world. But what we really wanted to do is build like a skeleton that people could put their own ideas, their own thoughts for how this world works. That's kind of baked into the mechanics. We can talk about that in a little bit. Sure. Um, the only other detail about the world, we kind of touched on this earlier, is that it's explicitly inclusive. It's it's a world where, it, like I say, it's it's not just... It's not just that we're ignoring oppressions that we were talking about before. It's actually that, like, the inverse is true. It's actually perfectly cool for you to be openly gay in, in school. Like, no, no one no one would bat an eye at that. The world is, like, very accepting of, of all species and all different races of people. The world is, like, incredibly um, open to sort of disabilities and trying to find out ways to, to work around those. One example that I give is um, in the setting Skeletons, uh, the Undead speak entirely through sign language mm. and sign language is a i guess you'd call it a non-elective it's like a mandatory class in school early on so everyone can communicate with skeletons and just sort of baked into the law is like i wrote i wrote that the skeletons all communicate via sign language and then someone was like well how's everyone going to communicate with them and i was like well everyone just can right <laughs> like it's it's just it's just that's you get taught that up to like age 16 or whatever so everyone's fluent in in that language that sort of thing um, so, yeah, I'd say the law really is summed up by 1950s, but with elves and fantasy, and also radically inclusive. That's kind of the three pillars of the law, and then everything else from there is either some fun stuff that we added to the back of the book, or just you as a player gets to come up with everything that follows from that. Sure. Now, you can still be ostracized for being in the wrong clique, so just because you're a skeleton, that's cool, but if you're a, a jock skeleton, then maybe some of the nerds may not care for you that much? Oh, yeah, exactly, you're right, like... It's set in, in the high school, right? So there's still drama. There's still people, you know, starting fights and my gang's better than your gang, that sort of thing. That's actually, again, a very core part of the game uh, mechanics. Uh, we have, when you when you start a game of Americana, we have a pretty involved session zero. Um, Ding, take a drink. <laughs> we, uh, we do a town creation and we do the your dead friend creation. Part of town creation is that you build a set of gangs and cliques and give them places where they live and hang out and then you connect them to your players and you sort of design and talk about how they interact with the world and what information they might have that you might need and how you're going to get into stuff with them and then a, a, an average session of americana really involves going to those locations interacting with those gangs doing you know, risky things with them to try to get them to tell you what you want, and then going and finding another gang that maybe they mentioned, and dealing with the conflicts between those two. Yeah, uh, that's one of the things, again, uh, having looked through the materials as much as I was able to, um, that I like is that you, you create the setting. You, you create your version of the town, and there's templates and there's guidelines for to make, you know, how to make that work. But your version of Americana is still going to be specific to your table and to your group of friends and you can add in elements that maybe don't exactly make sense for 1950s but again we got orcs and dragons so who cares hmm. um and you kind of get to set up the, the the you know the canvas that you're going to interact on as i really like that aspect it's you know again it's a system that i'm becoming more and more familiar with i know powered by the apocalypse games often start with those types of uh session zeros again ding take a drink where you're you as a group collectively come up with the setting uh, but the element that's a little bit different for this one is the your dead friend element, which is somewhat similar that as a group, you collectively create the victim that is the uh, inciting incident for the game, right? Correct, yeah. 
So what was it about that that you thought, you know, because you could just as the GM say, okay, it's always going to start with a dead body. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what is it that you think is valuable about the group creating that person? Well, when you think about any famous murder story, right? When you think about any long-running murder TV show or you think about any film that centers on a murder, the most important character tends to be not even the protagonist. It tends to be the the murder victim. They're the ones that tend to have the most conversations about them. They're the ones that tend to often have a lot of scenes in flashbacks or with like their relatives that they're, they're central to the story. And it always seemed odd to me that in most murder mystery games that I've played, the victim is kind of like off to the side a little bit. So in Americana, I wanted to play around with the idea of, well, what if that character is a character? What if that's somehow a collective character that you, that the table creates together bonds with creates relationships and ties and strengths and weaknesses just like their own characters what would happen then and as it turns out what happens is everyone gets really 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 invested in solving this crime the your dead friend mechanic has a couple of different layers to it a couple of different things going on but for all for our purposes right now it is a character that you all make together at at character creation they use the same rules for making a character as everyone else does um sort of and the way how they play out in the game is their character sheet sits in the middle of the table next to your big... And on their character sheet is a sort of web of connections and ties that you'll build throughout the game. Um, literally drawing lines and writing names to give you the clue of how you're going to solve this murder. When you get into a situation in the game, a, a challenge or a task that you need help with, and no one else at the table can help you, but your dead friend could. Maybe your dead friend has a skill, let's say lock picking, right? Um, let's say they, they just they're able to pick locks. If you have to pick a lock and you're like, okay, well, um, I need an assistance, I will tap my friend for it, my dead friend. What happens then is you and the storyteller, the GM, and everyone else at the table will create a flashback scene where you talk about how your dead friend taught you how to do this or, or there was a moment that inspired you to sort of like pay attention and, and something that you're drawing upon you play out that little flashback scene and then when you come back you get to use their dice to to help you roll and hopefully succeed mm. um so not only is it part of the creation process not only does it create a character that you care more about but you actually build that relationship throughout play <clears throat> In a, in a mechanical way as well as a narrative one. I like that. It's very, very interesting. I mean, I'm, there may be other games that have done similar, but I'm not as familiar with them. But I'll, I really like that aspect because, like you said, it's going to keep the victim forefront in the player's mind because they're always present in a way. Exactly. Whether, rather than just being there, you know, and then instigating the, the, the game. Which, I mean, there's obviously law, CSI, law, law & Order, those shows have made a, uh, you know, entire catalog of of shows based on there's just a dead body and it spurs our investigators to go look but that's very procedural Mm -hmm. and i think this is again we're we're focusing a little bit differently here and i I don't know i really like that i think that's a very interesting uh way to approach that now one of the questions i actually have a couple questions so let me try to hit both of them circle around um so one of the things that i i have played in a game 
that has sort of a similar setup with, you know, it's a group of people coming together to solve a murder. In fact, this game is based heavily on Veronica Mars. I think it's called We Used to Be Friends, mm. uh, which is from the theme song of that show, which I don't, I don't know if it's out yet. It was in development. I did a play test. Uh, and it was a type of game where we did create some of the, the setting, like, you know, where do people hang out in your town and who's the rich people and who are the poor people, very Veronica Mars-ish. But we we determined who the murderer was through play. Like, it wasn't, when we start, sat down, the GM did not know, okay, this is the person or people who killed our victim. As the game progressed, we got to a point where we're like, well, who do we think did it? And based off of some roles and mechanics, we built up some sort of influence. And eventually one of us was able to say who the murderer actually was because we had discovered so many clues that what we put together on our version became the correct version. Mm -hmm. Does this game work similarly where the the murderer actually is created at the table through play? Or do you as the GM say, okay, I know it was the corrupt sheriff. We're going to get to that through play. We talk about how both... directions can be used in the game um personally for me i think intended play is that the table figures out who the murderer is through play and through narrative and sort of through collaborative storytelling um i think that's just more interesting i think that's a a little bit more fun when everyone at the table is kind of like piecing all this stuff together in in my game the the storyteller is very much there to facilitate people coming up with cool little moments and cool stories that will eventually knit together into a, a murder mystery, a, a sort of solution to who got, who, who did the murder. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do actually have a couple of different rules for um, the GM being like, this is who killed them. We will figure it out. We will figure out how we get there through play. Um, so I'd say in, in Americana, both methods are supported, but my intended play is through, gameplay uh mainly through like i said collaborative storytelling and narrative okay uh for me personally i i one of the few things i didn't like about that game was the fact that it seemed like it was just i I don't want to use the word arbitrary because it wasn't arbitrary it was through play and through mechanics that some people built up more influence in allowing them to choose but that was one of the things i I walked away going like you know, it wasn't as much fun for me. I, mm-hmm. I wanted there to be a definitive person behind the crime, and we got to it however we got to it. I guess in some ways, like Gumshoe, like our right, individual right, characters right. are going to find certain elements, and maybe we get further along or further away. But yeah, just for me personally, I I would prefer that that element already be decided by the GM. And, you know, again, I, I'm big pro fudging like i might decide this is gonna be the sheriff and we just never get anywhere near the <laughs> sheriff in the game so it turns out it was the principal instead like i'm sure. i have no problem doing that but as a player i particularly this is michael speaking here enjoyed the game better when i at least believe that there was a person that we were looking toward and we didn't just so like go well based on all the evidence it has to be this person but it doesn't really have to be. It just has to be because that's the way the game works. So I'm glad yeah. that both versions are an option so that because some people might prefer the other. Totally cool. Michael would prefer the one where the GM sets that particular element. We have a mechanic that you might like called the envelope um, that literally involves the storyteller GM writing a name or just an archetype down on a piece of paper and sealing it away and keeping it next to the Your Dead Friend sheet that charts all the relationships and connections and ties and what have you. Nice. And obviously inside the name is is the murderer, and that just sort of sits there as a 
reminder throughout the entire game we sort of like said that if you want to do it the way how you prefer that might be a technique you could use nice I totally get where where what you're saying comes from. I mean, part of the fun of watching these shows, watching these movies, is kind of be is knowing that there's a definitive answer and trying to puzzle it out as you go. And so, I think games that try to create similar experiences should maybe think about how that might work as well through play. Um, I th- I think we've hit a pretty good middle ground. I I hope that we we are able to please please everybody, which is something they say you can't do. But hey, yeah, but you can try. Yeah. All right. So the other thing that I was uh, interested in learning more about is um, the thing. One of the things I think about when I think about 1950s Americana, which again was before my time, is that again you have these social cliques. You have some mm-hmm. people that don't hang out with other people: the greasers, the jocks, the nerds, the social butterfly type thing. But I assume that our group of our party members will be made up of different groups like you will have a jock and a nerd and a social butterfly Mm -hmm. is it just assumed that because we all know the victim we're going to work together or is there an element of crossing boundaries to form the group at all we talk about and again this is there's not much in the way of mechanics to support this this is all sort of through narrative discussion and it sort of hinges on how we describe how we sort of see the game playing so maybe people would play it both ways again here but the way how we have it written down in the the game is that you may already be a bunch of friends you may already be um a a clique yourself but you are probably just a bunch of people who knew the victim in question and are coming together specifically because of the murder and maybe that causes conflict we actually, when we mentioned the gangs earlier on, uh, it's perfectly plausible for player characters to be members of those cliques, members of those gangs. So, you know, maybe you're part of the 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 necromancers club that hangs out by the graveyard and you've got beef with those jocks that are always driving their hot rods around and like making fun out of you. But your friends died and you and this jock need to team up and now you've got conflict going on. Um, so yeah, it's perfectly plausible for characters to be part of those cliques and for conflict to arise from it and their relationships to sort of inform the investigation at large. It's going to be difficult for your nerd friend to figure out if the social butterfly characters' cliques know something if they really hate that nerd for something they did earlier on. Yeah, and that's one of the aspects of of this type of setting that I enjoy, particularly in Michael here as a as a role player. I like to explore those sorts of things where, um, you know, again, I, I hate to keep harping back on the Veronica Mars thing, but the we used to be friends where, you know, Veronica was part of this upper elite clique and then is no longer there. And so she can't just go ask certain questions like there has to be an element of. Uh, I, you know, I have to get leverage on you or you won't talk to me or I have to appeal to a different nature or, or, you know, I have to do a favor for you. Uh, so I like the idea that that could still be there, whether it's text or subtext, you know, Mm -hmm. like we don't really get along right now. I'm, I'm the jock here, the nerd, but our friend died when we were kids when we were all eight years old, we were all best friends and now this person's died. So we're going to work together, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be best friends again at the end of this. Right. I, I like to explore that. Maybe we are, but I like that to be something that we can uh, look at and develop. So that leads me into my next question is, is this designed for campaign play or is it pretty much like a one, maybe not one session, but a one murder, one town, and then you're done. It's, one murder, one town, then you're done. Certainly, and okay. that would take the form of a what I what I think is like a fairly short campaign for a game. We recommend 
eight sessions maybe is probably the golden zone for for making this mystery. You know, any less and it feels a little bit eh, and any more and it feels like it's dragging on a little bit and you're not like really chasing down the clues at quite the pace that, that you would be. One of the things that I was talking about with some friends was sort of the the how odd role-playing games are and how they can have campaigns that go on for months, years. You know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have stories of their Dungeons & Dragons campaign that they've been playing since, you know, for, for the past 10 years. Or I'm sure that I know plenty of people out there who are like, oh yeah, my campaign of five years is just wrapping up. And to me, that's like, whoa. <laughs> I can't, like, how how do you get all your friends in the same room that often? Right. Um, And I, it's it's enviable. I wish I could have campaigns quite that long. But I was thinking about how a lot of the times when I run games, my friends, you know, they they move away or they get sick. They have to go to work. Their schedule changes. And so if we get three sessions out of a game, that's a pretty good time for me. And what I thought was I'm probably not the only person dealing with that. It would be cool if there was a game that had a, a sort of inherently baked in shorter gameplay length. And so our campaigns are maybe about eight, maybe six episodes long, and that seems to me pretty doable. It seems that you could get all your friends together for six evenings in a row. That seems like something you could probably pull off. Um, so that's, yeah, definitely something we've, we've been thinking about and playing around with. Now, I, again, when I was a when I, when I was a kid and I first got into role-playing games, I was like 12 years old, and we would play on the weekends, and we pretty much just play like the entire weekend. We'd play Friday night, get up Saturday, play all day Saturday, go to sleep, play Sunday, uh, you know, play through high school, play through college. Uh, the idea of playing a campaign that lasted for years was the pinnacle, the idea, the dream. Oh, for sure. Now that I'm 40, I have two kids and a wife, and all my friends, or most of them are married with kids. If we get two sessions in a row, two weeks mm-hmm. in a row we play, that is a miracle. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the idea of playing a, a game that just goes on forever, it's just not even feasible. Like, it's not something I even try for because I know I'm going to end up in failure. So the idea of something that, hey, we need to commit to six games, maybe six out of nine, you know, like we have a couple freebies in there in case someone gets sick or overtime or something, but there's a definitive end. I feel like there's something inherently motivating about that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a campaign that in your mind, this is going to go until either we die <laughs> in real life or, or our characters <laughs> or, you know, or just something changes there's a little, I mean, obviously the GM can do a great job. The players can do a great job. And at the end of every session, you're like, oh my God, I can't wait to figure out what happens. But it's it's a different feeling when you know there's six to eight episodes. At the end, we're going to solve a mystery one way or the other. Uh, I just think there's something motivating about that. I, I kind of feel like it, for some people, that might be something that gives them a little more incentive to really try to force themselves to come, you know, and, and make the effort to be there knowing that you're building towards an end. Right, exactly. And we sort of talk about how the structure of a campaign, given its short length, can kind of have a TV series almost flow to it, where you've got a you've got a turn, you've got a climax that you're building to. We talk about how like we we have a we have a mechanic in the game where every character has a set of obligations that they're trying to keep up with. Um, because you're a teenager, you know, time's not completely your own. Um, so maybe you're a you know star football player, or maybe you've got the problem you're leading up to, or maybe you've got nationals for your magic club that sort of thing we talk about how a a good storyteller should take one of those big events one of those big high school events and make that the climax of the game so every game should probably start like three or four weeks before prom starts or Mm -hmm. you know it's only three weeks till nationals you know what are we going to do that sort of thing and 
that event should be kind of like the the climax the center the the lightning rod of some drama you know because that's that's how the tv shows do it right like every every tv show like that that i can think of ends with this big event and you should try to use that and, le- and leverage it and the shorter campaign length kind of lets that loom on the horizon as, as a sort of finish line yeah if if your murderer turns out to be the prom king or prom queen mm-hmm you want them arrested at the prom. Like that's exactly. where, that's where you want this to happen. You want them let out in handcuffs at the prom. Exactly. Yeah. And also Spider-Man Homecoming also again, you know, uses the prom as the sort of the climax or at least somewhat, uh, which I'm a big fan of that movie as well. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's a very similar sort of idea. It's the social climax. It's the, the, the peak of in that film, sort of Peter's social problem. And again, I, I was a teenager once I probably felt like those social obligations were just as important as life or death. So I think that does make sense. If you're playing high schoolers, there are certainly some people who would view missing the prom or being embarrassed by the prom just as bad as physically dying. It's actually funny you say that. That is the only method of, of like, quote-unquote character death in the game is through messing up your obligations and getting kicked off the football team or getting sent to military school or something <laughs> like that. A really funny early game thing is when we were hashing out these obligations, which are like a pretty core part of the game. It's it's a, a good side of the game is time management. You know, the, there is a a moment that I hope everyone will discover when they play this is when the the GM says, "Okay, you have to go and meet with such and such crew at such and such time on such and such day." Everybody at the table will realize, "Okay, we need to figure out when we're free," because I have practice or i have to be with my friends or i need to or or my family rather i need to go to church when do we have free time to go and chase up this murder and so that sort of pops out um anyway so it's funny earlier on in playtesting when we were hashing out these obligations one of the earlier ones was your mom is angry and someone (laughs) at the table was like that's the scariest thing that i've ever read in a game like that's terrifying (laughs) the idea of your mom being angry as a teenager is like (laughs) Worse than any Alba, like yeah, I mean, you can lose your car. You know, like that. That's again, that's one of the big things about the fifties too, is the invent of the the car becoming so ubiquitous that everyone could you know jump into a car and drive away. Right. If you lose your car, that's devastating. It's it's funny that you jumped right on that because that's that's exactly the intent of the obligations. We we sort of mention it in in telling, but the entire point of them is to for you as a character to think about what sort of narrative changes will happen to you if this thing goes away that you've been maintaining this relationship so like one one of the obligations is a job and we don't have a currency system this isn't a game where you're going to be like checking your wallet but like it's understood that if you lose this job which is pretty easy to do because you're a teenager and it's the 50s and it's not like you've got you know all that many job rights really <laughs> like right if you get fired then you've got no money no more how are you going to get how are you going to get the equipment you need to do the investigations? How are you going to pay for the gas for the car to drive to the place to see the people? How are you going to buy the things that you need? So I wanted to jump into mechanics, but actually that made me think of one more question I want to touch on first. And again, if there's anything else about the setting you want to touch on as well, we'll do that. Uh, But one of the things that also in, in my mind is sort of commonplace with these types of stories is your, your police. They're Mm -hmm. usually either corrupt or inept. So sure. where do the where do the the actual authority figures police figure into this murder mystery? That's something that we're going to leave up to players. Basically, we have a list of antagonist style 
characters in the back, um, where we sort of talk about what their strengths and weaknesses might be, kind of like our own version of a monster, ma- a monster manual. And we have a police chief in there that I wrote kind of like corrupt, but it's it's one of those things. Your town may not even have a police station if it's a small if it's small enough, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it all really depends on your story. All right, very cool. They may even be, given that this is a fantasy 50s, they may be a very helpful force that, like, is not incompetent and not corrupt, and they're happy to help you. One of the ways to solve the murder that we sort of mentioned very briefly in one example of play is getting enough evidence to, like, take them to the police somehow. And that that may not be how you want the story to end. I think that most of these stories are best when that character is untouchable in some way. You know, either the police aren't interested in following them up or they have connections or one of those things, but it's a perfectly viable way for you to explore that. So the, the, the manual, not only is it just like the rules of play and the setting, but it, it gives advice on how different aspects of the game could, could occur and play out. Given how deeply narrative based the game is, I think it's important to have a little explanation for, hey, like maybe you're struggling to come up with this sort of idea. Here's how we sort of envision that playing out. Here's some examples. Here's some, you know, things that popped up for us when we were playing this. You know, maybe this is helpful to you. Again, it's it's a take it or leave it thing. I know plenty of GMs and plenty of, of storytellers and tables are so competent enough to be able to put all this together without any sort of help from us, but I know a lot of tables, maybe you've never run a murder mystery game before, especially not like a campaign length one. And so it's it's nice and helpful to have that sort of thing. Well, and as someone who likes murder mysteries and, and very often has put them into my, my games that I, I traditionally play like Dungeons and Dragons, it's often hard to do a murder mystery in a game like that where, where characters, if they are able to do what they're supposed to do, can often just figure things out. You know, mm-hmm. you have speak with dead and all these other magical abilities that you can figure things out. And, you know, finding clues, if, if someone fails a perception check, does that mean they don't see what they're supposed to see? So it can take a little bit of finagling to make a murder mystery work in some games. So it's a little bit different when the game is designed around that especially when it's very narratively focused like this one is. Right. So I want to transition now into the mechanic area. So this sounds to me a lot like what I would consider a Powered by the Apocalypse game. So we've got rolls, we've got bonds, which you know we're calling ties. So is this a 2D6 system, or how do you actually do a thing? Like, I want to break into a, a building. My friend showed me how to do that. I'm going to leverage my dead friend. What do we actually do to see whether or not I succeeded or failed? So it's based on a system that I invented for a game called Mirror, which some people may have heard of. It's probably the most popular thing that Sandy Pug's done. It is based on strengths and weaknesses. So every character has strengths and weaknesses. In Mirror, you could just pick these. But in Americana, your strengths are tied to your role. You know, the jock has a bunch of uh, strengths that are tied to his, his or her or their athleticism and their popularity in the school, that sort of thing. The royal, who is kind of like the, the socialite, is has a bunch of skills related to empathy and being able to see people's emotions, that sort of thing. Um, but you choose your weaknesses, because weaknesses are sort of the foundation of stories, right? They're, they're, they're the interesting thing. So anyway, you've got these strengths. You've got four of uh, strengths and two weaknesses. And when you come up to a challenge that needs to be solved through dice... You pick at least one strength that relates to what you're trying to do, 
and then the GM or storyteller will pick one weakness that would be holding you back. And then you kind of keep doing this for a variety of different aspects of the scene. So once you've picked your strength and once you have one weakness, you might also look for something in the environment that you can trigger. If it's dark, for example, you need to do something like fine work, the the storyteller might say, okay, take another weakness dice. These are D6s, by the way. Take another weakness dice. If there's someone contesting it, they might look for their strength. And you're rolling those as weakness dice now. And you trying to break into this place might look to your friends and say hey can you help me out they'll give you a dice my dead friend will do a scene with them they give me a dice and so on and so on until you finally got your big dice pool to roll of your strengths and your weakness dice you roll them and anything above a four on the strength dice is a hit anything um or three or below is a miss on the weakness dice and you subtract the weaknesses from the strengths and you're left with um, however many positive or negatives that you, you know, end up having. Now, is there something where as long as you get one positive, you're good, or do certain tasks require a certain number of successes? So long as you have one positive, you're good. And there is a sort of sliding scale of success. So we we take a lot from things like Fate and uh, Apocalypse World, where you have a couple of degrees of success or failure. Um, if you have, like, minus two or minus one it's a, a catastrophic failure you know obviously terrible things are going to happen and you're you're probably going to mess this up in, in a big way if you get zero it's kind of even um we talk about how you at a zero you bargain to get what you want with the the table so you can offer to have your uh, lock picks break in the door or you can bargain to say maybe i make a lot of noise maybe i break something maybe someone walks around the corner in an opportune time and that again is a collaborative experience that's something that everyone at the table can chip in with but ultimately it's down to you and the storyteller to negotiate how you're going to get this and then if you get one and above you're great you're sound this is still a little thing that we're playing with um this this is where it's at right now there's still a little bit of balancing to go on there um Right now, I think it's in a pretty good place, but it sort of tends toward victory happening a little too often for me. So I'm wondering if there's a little tweaks here and there to fix that up. And every character also has a bunch of different strengths and abilities that allow them to modify dice rolls, flip them over and what have you. And if you fail too many times, if you fail or get even too many times, you start running out of dice. And that's kind of a mechanic we call exhaustion. Okay. Once you're out of dice in two different strengths, your character is done and the investigation is over and you're going to have to go home and recuperate and try again another night where things might be a little different. So I guess the first thing that popped in my head there is um, how many, like on the upper echelon, am I going to be rolling like four strength dice or 12? Like, you know, what kind of size of dice are we talking about? Because I can see with some being positive, some being negative, it could get unwieldy if you have too many yeah, that's definitely a concern for us. Um, I'd say the highest amount of dice I've seen rolled at the table so far has been six, which is probably on the upper ends of getting a little bit difficult to manage, especially if maybe you don't have different colored dice for the strengths and the weaknesses. The The rules as written, can you could feasibly roll a dozen, I guess, in theory. Um, I've, never, I've not seen that happen yet. People tend to not really hunt for more dice after a certain point, and mm -hmm. it's not necessarily beneficial for you to roll more dice because the more strengths you pull in the more weaknesses the gm is then going to be able to start pulling in you know if it's just you 
and your finesse versus the door and the darkness, that's one thing. But if your loud friend is starting a distraction as well, well, now the perceptiveness of the enemy starts coming in. And so it's kind of like a, what do you call it? Like It's, it's kind of like an attrition thing, you know, like gotcha. the, the GM is able to match you for every strength you pull up. And it's about managing that a little bit. It is a concern. It's one of those things that we're trying to balance. It's one of those things that we're definitely aware of because... It's no, you know, we've all played Cyberpunk where we've got like our our box full of D6s that we're just throwing on the table. Um, And that's something we want to avoid. It does give you a good opportunity, though, for uh, custom dice. So you have one color that has three blank sides and three sides that have like some sort of negative symbol. And then you have another one that's a different color, three blank sides and just three positive symbols. Because then you can just roll them as a group and then you just compare signals, symbols. Uh, you know, so you don't actually, because the numbers don't matter, right? One, two, and three is all a failure. Four, five, and six is all a success. Oh, heck, that's a really good idea. That's definitely a thing that we're doing now. Yes, that, that's <laughs> good Good call. Yeah, I'm glad you noticed that in the rule book that I'll definitely add in now. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. So mechanically, is there anything else uh, besides just trying to succeed or failing and then that creating, obviously, tension because it's a role-playing game, but then learning things? Like I break into the office, I find that, yes, there is a pair of, gloves hidden in the you know the principal's office mm-hmm. is there a mechanical way that we build towards success and you have to have so many check marks before we are able to get to the end or is this very just role play heavy and once the information's out we can choose to do that yeah it, it's it's the latter it's very like i say narrative role play focused um there's not like a a, a skill with the D&D has like a sort of thing where you've got a series of skill checks to create a, a adventure throughout a thing. That's not the way that we do it. Um, we are, like I say, narrative focused in how we're doing stuff. What you get by succeeding, you get sort of rewards and ties. The, the, the storyteller can hand out these ties. Remember we were talking about the your dead friend on the page. They can they can say, okay, create a connection between these two things. This is how that works. Um, this is the truth behind that this is sort of a hint a clue and that's something that you can chase up as a player um and follow down so there's a little bit here and there uh, but by and large what we want is for people we want the mechanics to support the role playing but the role playing is definitely front and center in the game all right very very cool uh so at this point i imagine most people are either in or out they, they've heard about the mechanics they've heard about the setting this seems well, i hope so we don't have much else exactly <laughs> So let's talk about the Kickstarter specifically. Sure. Uh, so right now we're looking at probably going live in October. That, that mm-hmm. date's not 100% set. It's like 99.9. But October 1st, fingers o- crossed. Okay. So at some point in October, it's going to be live more, more than likely October 1st. It's going to run you know, about 30 days. So more than likely October 1st to 30th. Uh, though I would again would suggest that you do 31 if you're going to do October just so that you go through Halloween. Oh, yeah. That's a good idea. So what are we looking at? Like, What is our ultimate goal? What do you need? In, in funds to actually make this a thing we need about six thousand eight hundred bucks that's mainly to pay for editors artists layout that sort of thing we are a small group mm-hmm. which means that we keep our costs pretty low because we're all broke but and and that sort of is like the baseline of what we would like to do that would that would create a really really beautiful book i've got a fantastic couple of artists who are just making some phenomenal stuff and I, I'm really excited to get more work from them. That will also, you know, pay me just a little bit to to have written the whole thing. Oh no, you're not allowed to get paid for your work. Don't you know anything oh. about RPG designs? Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> so it's now sixty two hundred. No, <laughs> right. So if anything, honestly, um, I think that's kind of low. 
not not yeah. necessarily like for the project, but just all the you know I I deal a lot with Kickstarters, very reasonable. I guess I'll use that word instead of low. So what are we are we, are we talking about PDFs or softbound books? Because I, I can't imagine you're producing a hardbound book for that. Or prove me wrong. Uh, yeah, we're doing uh, print on demand actually. So it's it's actually pretty easy for us to do hardcover books, not too much problem. So the various rewards that you're going to get is we have a $10 level for PDFs and a $6 option for that if you're below the poverty line. Wow. So, you know, if you're broke, feel I, I actually, I'm stealing that whole heart, whole sale from Dreams Askew. Their Kickstarter had a, a number of um, under the poverty line goals, and I thought that that was really, really important. I think that the games should be more accessible to people without a lot of cash because that often ties into a lot of the oppressive structures we sort of talked about before. But yeah, so if you're below the poverty line, it's six bucks. If you're above the poverty line, ten dollars entry level. The current options are a hardcover book at twenty bucks, and that is shipping extra. It's print on demand with Drive Through RPG, so you pay for the extra actual printing cost of the book and the shipping at the time. I think it eventually comes up to about thirty five dollars thereabouts, give or take. It might change a little bit depending on how many pages the book is as well. We give an estimate on the page, right? But still pretty affordable for hardcover. We're playing around with the idea of a soft cover as well. Uh, we're still finalizing that. That may be an option. That would be about five, maybe ten dollars less than the hardcover option. So that 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 makes your your goal much more reasonable to me. And again, I, I'm, this is in no way a negative, but the idea that I'm paying for the the printing costs and the shipping makes it make a lot more sense that I can get a hardback hardback book for around twenty bucks, which is going to cost me about thirty five. So that makes a lot more sense to me now seeing that you're doing that. So I think six to 800, very, very reasonable goal. Um, I also think $10 PDFs and potentially $6 PDFs, which I think is a very cool thing that you're doing. Uh, I really like that a lot, but I think this is a very, very reasonably set Kickstarter. I imagine you're going to be able to crush that. So what are some stretch goals we might see? Well, that's probably Something I'm ridiculously excited for, actually. <laughs> I, so I'm not I'm not an enormous fan of stretch goals. Let me go out and say that really quick. Uh, this might not be a popular thing. I know people love stretch goals. And that's fine with them. I'm not a huge fan of them. It always, for me, feels like I don't know what I'm going to get out of this thing. But that said, we wanted to have a couple of small, attainable stretch goals that we're going to set out. The prices on these aren't finalized, so I'm not going to say anything about that. But first of all, the very first stretch goal that we have is... We want to produce a audio drama set in the world of Americana that details a typical adventure that you might have. Uh, we have a pilot made that's going to go up with the Kickstarter, so you can listen to that and sort of get a feel for the vibe of the world, maybe sort of feel about how we, we imagine these stories being told. Um, and that's a lot of fun. I worked in podcasting a little bit. I, I have some experience in sound engineering. I've got a lot of actor friends. And so an audio drama just seemed like a fun, unique thing. Not I don't know of any other RPG that's ever done anything like that to produce. And that'll be a pretty pretty small stretch goal pretty soon after the, the initial funding is hit. The next thing that comes after that is the first new setting. So our stretch goals is two settings and the audio drama. The first new setting is something I am ridiculously excited to write. It's the it's Americana. It's the 1950s. It's fantasy. But instead of a murder mystery, you play as Super Sentai Power Ranger style characters, complete with giant robot that you control, power like power suits, 
morphing, that sort of thing. We've got some really fun mechanics that we've got planned out for that. We've got some really like cool ideas about how that's going to get together. That'll be a digital PDF that goes along with the game, and everyone who backs will get that as well. As, as well as the audio drama as well. And then the second kicks, uh, uh, stretch goal is another one I'm really excited for. We jump the timeline 10 years in the future. Um, so now it's the 1960s. And you are spies. Same, same deal. Fantasy characters still playing as dragons and orcs and that sort of thing. But now you are spies. And instead of a murder web that you're trying to bring together, it's a big conspiracy web. You're trying to find out who's behind it all. Hmm. And the cool thing about both the Power Rangers idea and the spy thing is that they, at their core, have some really cool mechanics that are really easy to to bend the Americana system into supporting. And they also have they also are really really cool <laughs> settings and really really cool like things to play out that really tickled my fancy as a designer to sort of finally make these these really really wicked ideas. Well, that that sounds like a lot of fun. The first thing that popped in my head when we first started talking over email uh, was sort of the Stranger Things supernatural elements. But when you're playing skeletons and dragons and orcs, I don't I don't know that the supernatural element really is a mystery element anymore. It's, so. it's hard to sort of sell psychic powers as very strange when one of your characters, can, you know, is is a dragon yeah. who breathes electricity. <laughs> Yeah, kind of, kind of negates that that avenue, but uh, but yeah, the the Power Ranger things is is kind of cool. But actually, I would say I'm more interested in the spy. Like mm-hmm, I think yeah. the 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 conspiracy spy like that sounds very very interesting to me. It's funny one one or one of those always gets someone. One yeah. of those ideas <laughs> always always ticks someone's box. It's very rarely both. I think I might be the only human being on the planet excited <laughs> for for all three of these ideas simultaneously at the same time. But it always tickles someone's fancy. The idea of being like an orc secret agent trying to uncover a conspiracy or the idea of being a pompadoured skeleton power ranger always gets someone going <laughs> now, I mean, hopefully someone listening will will be able to contact you and say actually no i'm i'm in for all three as well we could start a club yeah there you go you could be uh, a socialite in one of the games all right so so if somebody wants to check out the kickstarter uh, again it's gonna be live probably on october 1st once it's live i'll put a link into this show note uh, sure which thing. you know maybe after the fact it's released, I'll also throw it out on Twitter. But where can people go right now if they want to connect with you, maybe learn more about the game, the process, or some of your other work like Mirror? Uh, where can people get a hold of Liam? They can check out my Twitter. Just go to Twitter, Sandy Pug Games. Uh, we have a website that I am bad at keeping updated, but you can go on there because when I do, I hope it's pretty good. Um, SandyPugGames.com. We have a Facebook page that uh, you shouldn't probably follow because I am absolutely terrible at updating that. But the Twitter I'm very active on. They can also reach out to me at signingpuggames at gmail.com if you just want to chat. Happy to do that. Yeah, I, I have a drive through RPG page too, but that has a URL that's very long and difficult to say out loud. But if you Google me, it'll come up. And just, again, any links to Twitter, Facebook, anything you do want to include, send to me, and I'll put everything in the show notes. So if anyone's listening and they didn't write down what you said, just go to our show notes and there'll be links to everything that he mentioned. Whether you should or shouldn't go to them, I'll include them all. I always like to listen to my podcast with like a notepad and just yeah. jot down. All <laughs> well, I do, I do most of my listening in the car, so that's not very uh, it's not very safe for me to do that. <laughs> all right, Liam, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I I really truly am excited about this game. It's very interesting. I love some of the aspects of it, the inclusivity. Uh, I just think I think you're hitting a lot of things 
just right on the nose. I'm very excited to see how well this goes. Is there anything that I didn't ask about or you didn't get a chance to say that you think would be really important that like if someone's on the fence, they're like, I'm kind of interested, but I'm not sure. Is there anything else that you would want to mention that we may not have given you time to do yet? No, no, I think you, I think you, we've covered everything in this, this show, or at least, at least everything that I think will sell someone on it. There's a couple of little mechanics here or there that we haven't talked about yet. There's a couple of things to flesh out. There's a couple of, you know, the game's still in progress, but by and large, I think that after everything we said, you're either on board or not. Right. And again, I, I definitely think that there's definitely enough there. Uh, so one thing I didn't ask, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of circle back around, is usually when I talk about Kickstarters, I like to know what's the sort of come-in level. And I kind of think we talked about that, the 6 and $10 PDF. But I didn't ask you what's the big, if someone's just got stupid money and they mm-hmm. really want to throw some support your way, what is the upper tier Kickstarter level they can back and what do they get for that? Well, so I, I think that our biggest level is still pretty pretty reasonable as far as it goes. Um, we might play around with a couple of other really big ones, but again, I was talking before about how I don't like stretch goals. I also don't like uh, Kickstarters with a million different reward tiers. That said, if you've got 150 bucks to blow, we are going to have in the book a yearbook section that has sort of examples of all the different characters. It's going to be like our... You know how, how Dungeons & Dragons always has that like lineup of the various different species standing next to each other and yep. like you see their height and that sort of thing? It's like our version of that. We're going to show off of the different species in the game that way. I think that's brilliant. If you, want, if you, got, 150, if you got 250 bucks, uh, you could throw that at us and you get to be one of those. Our artists will turn you into whatever uh, uh, undead, a, a dragon, a orc, and you can be like a 1950-style uh, yearbook photo in our, in our book. That's our... Our biggest tier right now, but talking to you has inspired me. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll fly some people out to Mexico. We'll have a a, a, a weekend long game. Yeah, absolutely. Again, you need to put just one on there. It's like five thousand dollars, and then again, you you have a weekend trip to Mexico and you play a game, all that kind of good stuff. I, just in case someone will throw it at you, just you you never know. We could do the Wu Tang Clang thing. We could just have one tier at six thousand eight hundred bucks, and if you hit that, we we end the Kickstarter. You funded it, and you get the only copy. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I, I, th- I think a 6800 you fund it and we love you, but I don't think I would call it at that point because I, I think you have something on your hands here that I, I, I want to see how well this goes. I, I'm, I'm hoping that it does very well for you. So Liam, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. I, I'm, I truly am excited about this game. I'm interested to see when it goes live, what happens. And I think you got a backer. Like I really can see myself getting a copy of this and running it because I love murder mystery games anyways. And I think this is something that I would have fun playing at my table. So thank you. Thank you so much. That's, that means a lot. And thank you so much for having me on. You know, it's, I don't think this, this gets said a lot, but folks like you on your podcast, letting us come on and talk about our games really does help a lot, not just from the publicity point of view, but I feel a lot more like comfortable and excited about my own game, talking about it and hearing feedback like this. I, I want, wanted to say, I appreciate you and everything y'all do as well. All right, well, I, th- I thank you for that as well. And so with that, we'll go ahead and sign off. So this has been Michael. Oh, and this has been Liam from Sandy Pug Games. Fantastic, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy Network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out therpgacademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. 
the podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the drive-thru RPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at therpgacademy.com and reach us on social media, such as Facebook and Google Plus at the RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, the Caleb G, at the Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at the RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. <laughs>